to me. What is it that I enjoy about watching someone else throw a ball, put a ball in a hoop, or hit it with a stick? The allure of sports for me isn't so much the great feats of athleticism, although it is impressive, but the stories behind the games. Each organization has its own story. There is no better example than the NFL team that is 60 miles to the north of us. The story of the Green Bay Packers is full of twists and turns that led to a small town in northeastern Wisconsin being home to one of the most valuable sports franchises in all of the world. Anytime I take a friend or family member to Lambeau for the first time, they can't believe the city of Green Bay is home to the Packers. That a storied NFL franchise plays their home games in the middle of an average Wisconsin neighborhood. I really enjoy the stories about the great coaches. Men and women who recognize something special in an ordinary team pushing them to greatness. Coaches like Herb Brooks who coached Team USA Hockey to an incredible gold medal in 1980, using college boys to defeat professional men. You probably know the story better as the miracle on ice, when the young, inexperienced United States team beat the Soviet Union 4-3 during the medal round. The Soviet Union was full of professional players, and it's regarded as one of the greatest upsets in sports history. They had won the last four gold medals had just, and had just beaten that same U.S. team 13 days earlier, 10-3. A coach like Pat Summitt, who was thrust into head coaching duties for the University of Tennessee women's basketball in 1974 at the age of 22, after the previous coach suddenly quit. In 1974, women's college basketball was still in its infancy and not yet an NCAA-sanctioned sport. Summit earned $250 per month and had little support having to wash the players' uniforms herself. By the time she retired in 2012, she turned Tennessee into a perennial power, accruing 1,098 career wins, 16 SEC championships, 18 Final Fours, and won eight national championships. Not bad for a coach that didn't get her first win until more than a month into her first season. Or Phil Jackson, who was hired as the head coach of the Chicago Bulls in 1989. In 1989, the Bulls had all the player talent they needed to win an NBA championship, but were repeatedly eliminated from the playoffs. Jackson coached the Bulls for nine seasons, winning the NBA title six of those years. After leaving the Bulls in 1998 and taking a year off from coaching, he was hired as the LA Lakers coach in 1999. Trusted with another very talented team that had not been able to win the ultimate prize in basketball, an NBA championship. In his first season with the Lakers, they went 67-15, and 15. that's 67 wins and 15 losses during the regular season, and then won the 2000 NBA championship. The Lakers went on to win the, next of, to win the title the next two years, giving Phil Jackson nine rings and 12 seasons of coaching. If that wasn't impressive enough, he would take another year off in 2004, only return to the Lakers, and win back-to-back -back titles again in 2009 and 2010. What is the secret of these great coaches? Do they know something that the other coaches don't? Of course not. They play by the same rules that we all play by. What great coaches do, or any great leader really, is get their team to buy in, to work together, to establish a great culture with a unifying goal, and to get their teams to listen to that goal. When players or employees or citizens, and especially Christians, listen to a great leader, great things happen. That brings us to our passage this morning, which is Psalm 81. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Oh, that my people would listen to me, to the choir master according to the Giddeth of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. 
Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he, who, but he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. The goal of the psalm is to challenge God's people to covenant faithfulness with the promise of covenant blessings or punishments that will come, depending on the response. Psalm 81 reviews the basic history of the covenant, charges Israel with unfaithfulness, and urges them to embrace the covenant. If they embrace the covenant, God will subdue Israel's enemies and unleash his blessings reserved for them. Albert Barnes put it this way in his commentary on Psalm 81. It would seem from the psalm not improbable that it was composed in a time of national declension in religion, and when there was a tendency to idolatry, and that the object of the author was to rouse the nation from that state, and to endeavor a reference to the past to bring them back to the more entire devotedness to God. The psalm is just as important to the church today as it was to Israel back then. It is a reminder of the mercies of God and a revealing of the great reward of a country and a church wholly devoted to the service of God. In this psalm, God mourns over what might have been. He ponders the history of his chosen people in Israel, and God laments over what he could have done for them and through them if they had only obeyed him. If only they would listen. The potential was lost from simple disobedience. It is a mystery to us that an all-powerful God, with a purpose that cannot and will not be impeded, limits his power and blessing to the obedience of his people. While God's reasons will remain mysterious to us this morning, the message is clear. That the, way, the best way to, excuse me, that the way to a best possible life is to walk in obedience to the Lord, to listen to the counsel God has provided for us. We have four points this morning. The first is found in verses 1 through 3, and the point is a call to worship. The second is verses 4 through 7, God's work to care for Israel. God's work to care for Israel. Our third point is in verses 8 through 10, God's call to his people to worship only him. God's call to his people to worship only him. And finally, point 4, verses 11 through 16, if only we would listen to God. If only we would listen to God. Point one, a call to worship, verses one through three. The call to worship is a triumphant call in the opening verses. The people are to use their instruments to demonstrate their joy, 
whether it be through their voices or the tambourine, the sweet lyre, the harp, or blowing the trumpet. As a church, we start each of our services with a call to worship. It is a way to distinguish the importance in what we are about to do, a way to call our focus to worshiping God. We have so many distractions and carry them everywhere with us. We go, including into our worship services. The call to worship is a pointed way we can center our hearts and our minds on worship. It urges us to turn away from the imperfect world to, to praise God. It sets apart this portion of our week as different from the rest. We are recognizing that what we are doing takes on an importance that pales in comparison to our daily activities. God calls us to worship him. Before we can be called to worship, we have to understand that it is initially God who is doing the calling. Through this realization, we can respond as his people, doing what God has asked us to do. A call to worship is meant to turn our mundane morning of getting ready for church, maybe yelling at our kids to hurry, or dealing with a bout of road rage on the way, to awe and wonder at the glory of God. Are you in awe of God this morning? Did your focus this morning go from the ordinary to the stunning? Worship takes into account God's holiness and his position as a judge to whom worship is due alone. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Worship is meant to be experienced, not simply observed from the outside. We recently marked the 20-year anniversary of the attacks on September 11th. Leighton has started to learn about September 11th at school, but it happened almost 10 years before she was born. While she has learned some of the facts about that day, and we've told her our 9-11 stories, she didn't personally experience it. She wasn't around to feel the fear and the uncertainty in the air that day. Our experience paled, excuse me, to watch the buildings as they crumbled to the ground with thousands of people inside. While most of, his, while most of us in this room were alive to experience that day, our experience pales in comparison to the people that were on a hijacked airplane or in New York City on September 11, 2001. There is an obvious difference between observing something and experiencing it. We are called to worship now, today. Worship is not something people did during biblical times that we simply learn about and reflect upon. We are called to actively experience our worship. These verses specifically mention music as a form of worship. It says, sing aloud to God our strength, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with a harp, and blow the trumpet. Music is often used to show joy or celebration. We worship God this morning with music. Music is played at events such as parties, weddings, or even a football game to enhance the experience. Music is an integral part of, integral part of worship. It is an expression of congregational praise that we should all participate in regardless of our talents. The other 13 verses in the psalm take on more of a somber tone than the first three. The enthusiasm of these opening verses reminds us that even hearing some hard words from the Lord is a privilege worthy of song and celebration. That moves us to point number two in verses four through seven, God's work to care for Israel. The second section recounts the way in which God worked on behalf of his people to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. God tells his people, I retrieved your shoulder of the burden. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. 
I tested you at the waters of Meribah. The psalm makes reference to when Israel went out a call, excuse me, the psalm makes reference to when Israel sent out a call of distress to God and he delivered in Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25. During those many days of the king, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Israel cried out for help to God, and he heard, reminding us that God hears our prayers. Also, God remembered his covenant. God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants. He promised that they would become a great nation. This promise would be realized through Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery through the desert and toward their promised land. This was all despite Israel continually putting God to the test with their lack of trust. It's funny that we continually test God today. Is God doing right by me? We especially wonder what God's plan is during hard times when things aren't going the way that we planned. Israel constantly put God to the test. Exodus 17, 1-7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the, the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the, or pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Israel had seen God do great things in the past. By this time, God had gotten them out of Egypt, he had parted the Red Sea, he sent them manna to eat, and he had promised to do great things for them in their future. The problem for Israel was what is happening now. Imagine being enslaved by an enemy with, uh, being enslaved by an enemy with little hope of ever getting out without a miracle. Then God miraculously delivers you out of slavery to live a free life. How could you test that God again? Imagine running away from an enemy in quick pursuit, then coming to a large body of water with the enemy right behind you. There is nowhere to go. Then, through a miracle that can only be performed by God, the Red Sea parts and you are able to walk on dry land safely across to the other side. When the enemy tries to do the same, they are washed away by the water roaring back into place. How could you test God after seeing that? Imagine wandering in the desert for 40 years with nothing around to sustain life, yet each morning being provided with miraculous food substance that came daily with the morning dew. How could you test this God? Imagine seeing all these things God had done for you, hearing his promises of a land of peace and abundance that would be yours, and your reaction during the slightest adversity being, is the Lord among us or not? It seems really dumb, doesn't it? 
If you put yourself in the Israelite shoes in these verses, they are in the middle of the wilderness with no water. Certainly a scary thought at the present moment. But it is easier for us to see that Israel had so much evidence from the past that God would provide for their needs. They had his promise that their future would be great. How could they be so naive to fear that God was going to end them by the way of thirst? The answer is simple. They didn't trust God. They gave no thought to what God had done in the past or to what he had promised for their future. All they could think about was the thirst that was occurring now. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why, God, why? Brothers and sisters, we are no better today. We are a blessed generation. We live in a life of comfort that could not even be imagined by an Israelite. We have a global church. We have more resources than ever to learn about God. We can worship here this morning freely. We have no fear of being enslaved. None of us worry about where our next meal is coming from or whether or not we are going to have any water to drink. If an Israelite walked into our service this morning, they would be in awe of the ways that God has blessed us. We can control the climate in this room to the exact degree. When we are injured or sick, we have places to, be go, to go to be healed quickly. We all travel here from our homes miles away in mere minutes. We can all see each other and everything around us in this room without windows or any source of natural light. We live in a land of abundance. God has blessed us so fully in so many ways that his, that his miracles don't feel miraculous anymore. Adversity comes and we quickly forget all that he has done. We ask, is the Lord among us or not? Most importantly, we have the miracle of Christ. We have the knowledge that we are redeemed, that our sin cannot enslave us when our trust is in Christ, that we have a promised future of eternal life in God's perfect kingdom. We have seen so many miraculous things God has done in our lives. On, on top of all he has already done, we also have a promised future. God has cared for us more than we give him credit for. We are just like the Israelites questioning God, why me? Why us? In fact, we are probably worse. As God's creation, he knows our every need and he provides for those needs. He cared for us in the past, he is caring for us now, and his promise is that he will care for us in the future. The evidence is clear and his promises are always kept. Don't test God, trust God. Trust that God will care for you. I love the verse in Matthew 6.26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Christ is telling us that believers do not need to live in anxiety about our needs. Living to serve God includes trusting him to provide what is needed without fear. I love when Jesus uses rhetorical questions because he does it in a way that makes the point so obvious. Are you not more valuable than the birds? Of course we're more valuable than the birds. The birds. We are God's children, and he cares for all of our needs. Point three, God calls his people to worship only him, highlighting verses 8 through 10. These verses follow along closely with the previous four. The Lord wants his people to listen to him, to believe in him, and to live the way he directs. Verse 8 says, Hear, O my people, while, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Again, it is hard to fathom that we would be deaf to our God, but we are so bad at listening to God that he is to earnestly ask for us to listen. Verse 9 is an effective summary of the first two commandments from Exodus 23 and 6, or 3 through 6. 
you shall have no gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here God commands us to love worshiping him and only him. Now, it's easy to hear these verses in Exodus and think, well, that's an easy one. I've never worshipped a carved image or anything like that. While you may have never worshipped a carved statue, we all worship something. The atheist down the road that doesn't believe in any sort of God or creator worships something. Maybe the word worship doesn't always seem applicable, but we all live for something. We can worship money, we can worship politics, we can worship beauty. The novelist David Foster Wallace, while not a notable Christian, spoke these words to the 2005 graduating class at Kenyon College. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will, never, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. If we are living for anything besides God, he promises us that we are living for something lesser than him, something that will fail you over and over and over again. That's why he commands us to not bow down to a foreign God. God commands Israel and us to worship only him because idolatry is a perennial challenge for the people of God. As John Calvin stated, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We are really good at worshiping things instead of God. We have to recognize this fact and rage against our desire to bow down to a foreign God. At the end of this section in verse 10, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. This is the goodness and the grace of our God. He saved us from bondage to sin and has commanded us to walk in his ways. Not because he hates us, not because he wants us to be miserable, not because he doesn't want us to do the things that we want. He commands us to open our mouths so that he can fill us with his blessings. In Deuteronomy 6.24, Moses tells Israel that God commanded these things for our good ways, for our good always, and for our preservation. Deuteronomy 6.24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statuses, to fear the Lord our God, for good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. God's commands are like parents telling their kids not to do something for their own good. Davis loves to run around our upstairs with a blanket over his head. Don't ask me why, but he loves it. It makes him very happy. He gets lots of enjoyment out of it. He often runs by the top of our stairs with a blanket over his head, not being able to see where he is going. We have told him time and time again not to do this. He understands that he could fall down the stairs. 
We tell him this not because we want to take away his joy that he gets by having his blanket over his head, but because we know it keeps him from eventually dealing with the consequences of the choice that will lead to falling down those stairs. Laws are in place that restrict our freedoms but are for the greater good of everyone. No one ever wants to stop at a red light, especially when we are running late. The last thing we want to do is sit and wait, but the traffic light is designed to protect you and everyone on the road around you. We are motivated to follow that red light because we don't want to get hit as we pass through the intersection. Yet accidents and intersections are an everyday occurrence. Why? Because sometimes we justify our reason for speeding through the intersection after the light turns yellow. We violate rules and laws to our own peril. God commands stem from this, his perfect, God's commands stem from his perfect goodness. He wants to bless us. What more motivation do we need than to follow his direction than God's blessing? Our final point. If only his people would listen. Verses 11 through 16. The final section of Psalm 81 starts in verse 11 with the sad fact that God's people do not listen to his voice. It states, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. Not listening to God led to sad consequences in verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. I can't think of too many scarier phrases to hear from God then. I'm going to give you a way to your stubborn heart to follow your own counsel. It's hard to imagine choosing your own counsel over God's, yet we do so because we are stubborn. What difficulties do we experience in life because of our stubbornness? Because we simply don't listen. If we're being honest with ourselves, most of the time we don't listen, do we? When we talk, we are only repeating what we already know, but when we listen, we learn something new. We focus a lot of our intention on praying to God, to letting God know our praises and our requests, and rightfully so. But we also need to listen to him. It shouldn't be a one-way conversation. Listening also simply isn't about reading God's word or sitting quietly waiting for God's response to our prayers. Listening is about obedience. We can say we are listening, but do our actions show it? If Christianity was made illegal tomorrow, would there be enough evidence to indict you as a Christian? Not just because you go to church on Sunday morning for a few hours, that would be easy enough to conceal from the authorities, but would the people around you know you are a Christian based on your day-to-day -day life? Would they be able to arrest you for being a Christian? Would your actions set you apart from non-Christians as breaking this new law against following Christ? If the answer is no, then you aren't listening. In the first chapter of James, he describes what the life of a genuine, trusting, saving faith looks like. James makes it clear that those who trust God don't merely become experts at listening to God's word, but act on what they hear. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all the filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We are called to accept the word. We are to accept the word in our minds and agree to it in our hearts. Those who believe stop talking long enough to listen. They take the time to hear and understand, but the faithful don't stop there. Faith in Christ is not, the on, not only the map to get us there where we are going. Excuse me. Faith in Christ is not only the map to get us to where we are going. It is the actual journey. Agreeing with the word is not enough. We need to do what the word tells us to do. 
we need to figure out the way God wants us to go and then go that way. Ooh. Sorry. Technology. We can hear the distractions of this world loud and clear. I'm willing to bet you've heard these. Yeah, that's right. We can hear the distractions of this world loud and clear. I'm willing to bet you've heard these distractions since I started talking. Maybe just now when I messed up my iPad. Actually, listening to God is a skill that needs to be intentionally and consistently practiced. We have the choice of who or what we listen to, but there is a cost for wandering. There is a cost for doing your own thing. If you don't listen to God, eventually you won't be able to hear him. The message of grace will sound like gibberish. When we stop listening to God, there are a thousand other voices waiting to replace his. Luckily for us, God does not give up and addresses his people with a fresh opportunity to listen in verses 13, 14, and 16. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. God clearly has compassion for his people. He wants what is best for us. He wants to pour out the blessings that he has reserved for us, but our disobedience gets in the way. Isn't that a, that a sad thought? We are withholding the blessing of God intends for us because we choose to disobey. This isn't to say whoever obeys God the best will get the best blessings. We can't measure our obedience to God through the amount of money in our bank accounts, how many friends we have, or the family that we were born into. It isn't that we will be blessed so much that we won't suffer. Trials will continue to come to the faithful, but it's not about how many trials or how much suffering we endure. It's about how we respond to the suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes an astonishing experience where he receives unspeakable revelation from God. To keep him humble, God gave him a thorn in the flesh, which we aren't quite sure what that means, but we do know that Paul wanted it out. Instead, God responds that his grace is more than enough and that his power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul is content in his suffering because it clearly proves that Christ is powerful. Listening to God does not always lead to worldly success. The Bible clearly teaches that earthly life involves pain, suffering, and humiliation, even for those that are faithful. God's primary concern for us is not a mortal life of ease and leisure. His first goal is that we trust him. When we trust him, we listen and obey to what he says. This means not to resent him for experiencing weakness, but to respond that we will boast all the more in our weaknesses. Listening to God doesn't remove the tough times. It changes how we react to them. We recognize that we have a purpose here, even after we are saved. God doesn't simply vaporize us into heaven as soon as we put our trust and salvation in Jesus, although it would be nice. We understand that there are no coincidences, that God has a perfect plan and is always in control. This allows Christians to respond positively in the face of adversity that life throws at us. 
The psalm goes into the psalm goes on to say that he would feed you with the finest wheat and with the honey from the rock I would satisfy you. These wheat words mean more than the Lord will feed his people to meet their physical needs. God promises to supply all the wants of his people. He offers his infinite resources to those that love him. Pastor Philip taught us last week that our creator God intimately knows every need that we have. He intimately knows our every way, our every desire. Better that we know these things ourselves, or better than we know these things ourselves. These are all available to us if we'd only listen to him. Verse 15 contains a warning. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. This is a dire warning that should resonate this morning. We show our love for the Lord by listening. The opposite is also true. Those who hate the Lord do not listen to him, leading to an opposite face an opposite fate that will last forever. People that refuse to listen to the Lord will stop hearing his voice. God's message of hope and blessings beyond measure falls on deaf ears. The gospel to them is nothing but a fairy tale that has passed down from generation to generation. The fate of those who choose to ignore the voice of God is the inability to listen to God anymore. At some point, there will be no coming back from ignoring God. There will be no fresh opportunities to listen and receive blessings afforded to us through Christ's redemptive work on the cross. For, those sad, for these sad souls, God's voice will go silent forever. The failure of Israel to hear the word of God was resolved by Jesus. Jesus always heard and honored the Father. Jesus perfectly listened and followed so that his people would have a perfect and complete salvation. We can be the benefactors of this reward. If the voice of God is no longer in your life, or you never listened to it in the first place, there is no better time than now to start listening, to recognize God as our righteous creator, to acknowledge that we are all sinners in need of a savior, to know that our only possible savior is Jesus Christ, and to respond with faith, repentance, and to listen. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for how you guide us using your scripture. We thank you for the opportunity to worship together this morning. We thank you for all the blessings that you've bestowed upon us throughout our whole lives and continue to bestow upon us. We thank you for how you care for all our needs, for our spiritual needs and our, our physical needs as our great creator. Bless us as we go back into the world that we will fight against our, our, our idolatrous hearts and put you above anything else. Finally, let us be a church that listens to your voice. You have shown throughout history that great things can happen when people listen to you. We pray that you will use us as your faithful listeners to accomplish your will here on earth. We say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.